0: Thanks for downloading the 22nd in our series of episodes of the C-Suite podcast that we're recording in partnership with the European PR agency Taito and their own Without Borders podcast where we are interviewing leaders of unicorn companies to find out about the key issues, pain points and challenges that startups face and how they can address them with a strategic approach to marketing and communications. My name is Russell Goldsmith and my co-host for this series of interviews is Taito's founder Brendan Craigie and today we are thrilled to be joined online from Detroit by James Taylor, Chief executive officer and co-founder of Electric Last Mile Solutions, a company focused on redefining the last mile with efficient, connected and customizable solutions. The company went public in June 2021 via a special purpose acquisition company or SPAC and now has a market cap in excess of $1 billion. Welcome to the show, James. We should probably start by you giving us a quick overview to Elms.
1: Well, thank you, Russell. They intro you already read there covered a lot of the material, but I'll look over a little bit at the uh, short form of Elms electric. So that's pretty self explanatory It's all electric, not hybrid. So that's the propulsion system of the vehicles that we will be producing. Last mile is the focus. The particular entries that we have, we're calling urban, urban delivery, urban utility, and really purpose-built and, and singularly purposed on short distance uh, deliveries, the last delivery or even service calls and things that have quite short uh, ranges and short duty cycles. That's where the electric last mile comes in. And then the last part of of, uh, solutions, uh, because these are focused only in the commercial market, not in the passenger market, then uh, a business, business business-to-business exchange from our standpoint, requires uh, solutions for their very specific use case that they're going to have. And these are tools. These are tools in their toolbox. These are part of their business, part of their efficiency, part of them making money. So we have to adapt these vehicles both on the digital hardware-software side, as well as the hardware side, to customize them to exactly what they're going to use these vehicles for.
2: James, you've been the CEO of Hummer, the president of Cadillac. I'm guessing you've owned some nice cars along the way. Why did you decide to found Electric Last Mile Solutions? What was your inspiration behind the company?
1: Well, I'll I'll spin backwards. As you said, it was a tremendous uh, sort of finale, let's call it that, at General Motors, uh, running those two brands, two great brands. Unfortunately, the Former brand didn't survive. It's uh, coming back in a, another reincarnation right now in a different form. But after that, I uh, left General Motors kind of around the bankruptcy time frame. And since then, for the last, I guess, 10 or 12 years, I've been working my way through various startups in this electric vehicle space. And uh, we can talk about that in a second. But electric last mile uh, in any startup, uh, I refer to it as you know cracking a code or kind of a Rubik's Cube, to be honest. And so in walking through numerous different aspects of the electric vehicle industry, we landed on this concept, this business uh, proposition, this business model, Electric Last Mile, and uh, we feel it uh, enters a very unique niche, it has a unique business plan to execute our strategy and has uh you know never guaranteed startups to be honest as you know have the odds mostly against them, but we think the uh the whole business formula we put together has uh very high probability of success in this uh, what I call tsunami of new electric vehicles that are coming to the market. So quite a different market. These aren't exotic luxury cars. (laughs) They're not for individuals. They're not for Hollywood movie stars. Uh, As I said in the introduction, these are just sort of the meat and potatoes uh, tools of any business trade uh, that allows commerce to occur every day
2: which is obviously very important, those meat and potatoes vehicles. And you mentioned that after General Motors, you got involved in a few other startups. Were there any kind of important lessons you took from those experiences that have helped you now? Yeah, quite a few.
1: And uh, I think when you meet and probably in your interviews, you've talked to so-called serial entrepreneurs, and as they establish companies and go from company to company, there's no question they're they're picking up more and more experience. And I'd like to look at it in a sense of I've made enough mistakes that I think this one at least solved the ones I'm aware of and that I've seen over the last four or five ventures that I've been through. And those can be across the board. You know, maybe they're personal mistakes, um, but there's sort of structural mistakes as well. It's either the ownership of the company, it's the investors that come in, and there's a lot of investors that. Are you know not friendlies that that raid companies and uh, had one very sad occurrence with a company that we thought was going to be extremely successful and then an investor came in and wiped us out. You know there's competition that comes out of nowhere, so you know keep your eyes out and be aware and don't assume everybody has good intentions. There's there's many many learnings along the way, but the most fundamental one is. I don't know if you have the show there, but the Shark Tank version you know, here, at least in the U.S., and you know whether they these guys are selling a lemonade stand or you know doing what we do. You know the first question is, what's your product, and does anybody want it? And there's an awful lot of businesses start up with a push system that says, uh, I think I'm going to create a market. And one of the expressions we used to have at GM when we were looking at some of our new product opportunities because you like people to push the envelope is, is this an answer to a question nobody's asking? So you can be sometimes, you know, leading a market and you could use the iPhone as a good example where we didn't know we wanted iPhones. We didn't know we needed little handhold computers, but here they are in everybody's hand. So you can invent some markets, but in the car business, a lot of the time, if it doesn't exist, there might be a good reason why it doesn't exist because nobody wants it. And you'll go through a very expensive product development program, launch the vehicle. Oh, look, nobody wants it. So, you know, the biggest fundamental in all those learnings is make sure you're starting out with at least a shot. This is a a probability game whenever you do startups. You've got to have at least a chance. So the the start of that is, is your product sound? And is there a customer demand? Is there a market? After that, you got all kinds of execution details that you can either do well or mess up, as you said, with the mistakes. But uh, the very, very beginning of that process is, uh, do you have a really good line of sight on a high market demand that when you finish all the tough parts, raising cash, executing, you know somebody's at the other end of that and uh, can't wait to get your product. That was
2: really interesting and helpful to get that context, James. And in, in terms of your kind of experience working with General Motors and the roles at, with Hummer and Cadillac, was there kind of experience in,
1: in that world that has helped you with Elms? Well, I think we're on the front end of that, of course, as a new company, but I'd say the top learning from both those companies, and I'll put it in the context of those companies and their competition and still their competition is you know, brand, brand and brand. So uh, I wouldn't say anybody can make hardware, but you know, more or less. And there's a lot of new entrants in the vehicle industry all the time from, uh, you know, foreign locations coming here or just uh, existing competitors. But you look at the uh, differentiation and the success and ultimately profit margin and how much of that is the hardware itself, four wheels, a tin box, you know, and driving down the road and how without the front grill on it and without the badge, how identical are 90% of the vehicles pick any segment you want versus then add and the badge on the front of it. You put a Porsche badge on the front to an exactly the same vehicle as a Volkswagen, which they do, and charge another $30,000 to make people much happier. So the uh, brand and brand image, brand loyalty, brand reputation is incredibly powerful. And in many cases, the difference between making money and not making money.
0: How are you... Therefore, differentiating and from your competitors, because obviously it's it's become a very hot space at the moment in terms of the you know the last mile delivery and and obviously with with such an increase in e-commerce you know booming particularly obviously off the back of the pandemic as well. So how are you convincing your customers to choose Elms?
1: Well, again as a new brand and being very realistic and honest, also we're still in that convincing phase and we're still out attracting new customers and convincing them to take our product. And I can exaggerate. So at the front of them, but what I see that we need to prioritize. the reason, uh, let's go back to why Elms and why not, let's say a Cadillac or a Hummer, is on the commercial side, this act of convincing your customers, to uh, to be honest, I wouldn't say it's simpler, but it's it's a lot easier in a sense that it's very pragmatic. When you're in a commercial, it's, again, a, a business asset. It's a tool. And it either does the job or it doesn't. Pretty black and white from a duty cycle standpoint. It's big enough, carries enough, or it doesn't. It goes far enough. You know, the range is adequate or it isn't. But these are uh, fairly rational asset-based financial decisions. Unlike the retail business is 80% emotional. You like the brand, you like the color, you like the styling, you know, you like the dealer. When you go through your final shakeout, it's uh, way more irrational, call it emotional, than it is uh, pragmatic and, and a business decision. So in our case, what we have to present these potential customers is the business case. Here's the story. This vehicle is going to do what you need it to do and it's less cost. It's kind of that simple. Behind that's a lot more complicated. But if you, uh, as we are now, make this proposition to a current fleet owner and say, look, I can drop your costs 30%. Are you interested? And you kind of got them right at the at the beginning that's pretty hard to say no thanks you know i'm good well how how would you do that you know the new technology the fact that these vehicles run at a immediately lower cost than the vehicles that are in your fleet as you turn these over your business is going to be more competitive that's a little hard to resist now at the second level though is okay yeah but how do these electric vehicles work and you know um, i've never seen one i haven't even driven one so the next uh, sort of hurdle is them getting used to it and uh understanding the product's capabilities and you know, developing, say, trust in us as a brand, that we're going to do our side of it as a company and then trust in the product itself. But the way we differentiate the current vehicles that would all be, of course, gas-driven vehicles is uh, cost.
2: I mean, kind of reading up uh, ahead of this conversation, I noticed that you speak a lot about reliability, efficiency and total cost of ownership. You kind of hinted at some of these things, but when you're having conversations or, or, or for fleet managers, logistic managers out there, what's kind of like the high level transformative impact that you can have for them with uh, electric last mile solutions? What, what sort of level of transformation are we talking about as far as those costs?
1: Well, um, let me uh, build my way up just to set the stage here. And, and uh, as you're all aware, the pandemic, but also the chip shortage, has brought kind of the supply side of the auto industry, you know, to its knees. And so if you look through the the last year, year and a half, but in in a high level sense and see that the annual demand, let's make that 100, uh, just for the sake of this discussion, that uh, would be a normal steady state replacement rate for new businesses uh, buying delivery vans. All of a sudden, the supply side went to 20 or 30%. So that 80% that's been replenishing fleets, you know, adding to new businesses, it was gone. So like all businesses, that starts drawing down the inventory, drawing down pretty soon, the inventory is zero. I was at a company last week, a dealer, he said, you know, typically, look out here, my lot would be 400 vehicles, I have four. So there's like no inventory. So you have this huge supply exceeding demand issue, regardless, gas or electric. Now you throw on top of that, the e-commerce increasing at pick whatever number you want, 15, 20%, who knows? Every year we we guess what it's going to be in it's higher. So Demand is from steady state going from 100 to 120 to 140. Supply is at 10, 15% of, of history. So they have this gigantic hole in this uh, delivery van market. Now new entrants come in instead of just, of course, the famous Amazon. And Walmart says, I'm coming in. Target says, I'm coming in. All these new players want to deliver food, want to deliver packages, of course, as we all, as consumers, have switched to saying, press this button, it'll show up at my door tomorrow that's not so bad with or without the pandemic. I think I'm going to keep doing this. So with all those uh, going in place, you have an enormous uh, amount of unmet demand. So as we walk in, fortunately, very fortunately, and say, hey, I got some extra hardware. We're incremental supply. They're very interested in talking to us, regardless of propulsion. Second factor comes in is a huge amount of Uh, I just say positive momentum in the EV industry and that take when I started the first one 10 years ago, where you had to go into a fleet guy and convince them to look at this. Batteries cost a fortune. There was almost no EVs on the road. People like Tesla who, you know, now it's been forward 10 years. Tesla's broken the ice. People are comfortable. Electric vehicles work. They charge. They go down the road. They don't break down, you know, every hour. So there's a much higher comfort level of adoption by these fleets than there would have been years and years ago. And the cost has dropped. You used to have to say, "Gee, how would you like to pay a fifty percent premium for an electric vehicle because you want to be, you know, environmentally responsible?" Uh, no thanks. I'm not that environmentally responsible. Now it's a wash or lower. So there's a lot of arrows have all of a sudden lined up where they're much more interested in the adoption. And I'd say just to put a little bit more, you know, icing on the cake, the large companies have also got very, very aggressive ESG goals that they're being either volunteered or mandated to take on. So they start looking through their company and saying what are all of the dials i could turn you know on my ESg front especially of course on the environmental side if you've got a large fleet that's one of the fastest you know switches that you can flip to uh, make a big headway into your uh, you know carbon footprint so those are all the driving factors uh sort of a long answer to say you know what's going on at the uh, fleet manager's desk well he's just trying to be a simple guy and order his vehicles. that's that's his his real world. So as we arrive with the solution, I just want to go
0: back to what said in the in our intro, the fact that you went public virus back and congratulations you know valued in in excess of a billion dollars. but why why did you choose that particular route to uh, to raise the finance?
1: Well, I think it's again, a, a luck and timing, you know, often works out in business. And, and this is one of those good examples where when we were going through this, actually, August of 20, and uh, my partner and I sort of forming this business concept and saying, you know, what about and, and running the play like all early companies would. And this was going to lead eventually to requiring cash and funding. We started down the, say, the traditional routes, which is a series A, B, Cs and private funding, maybe working away towards an IPO. We looked at some joint ventures with other companies that were already in the, this space, thinking maybe we could just, you know, jump in with them. And to be honest, Russell, I, I call it again. Along came the SPAC tsunami. It's like, oh my god, like everybody's jumping in there. Looks relatively not easy, but super quick. And when I'm asked about, you know, the advantage of a SPAC, well, the disadvantage is you take a three-year process and you jam it into six months, so it's sheer hell going through the process. The advantage is in six months, you go from zero to having your money. So that's uh, much, much less in the big picture, painless or much less pain than it would be going through a typical IPO press. So we go from, you know, call it zero funding to, you know, a few hundred million in the bank relatively fast. And that's the big advantage. I've been in the other path, raise 20 million, burn it, raise 20 million, burn it. You're constantly, you know, in the market, constantly meeting with bankers, constantly running out of money, constantly almost missing payroll. That is a huge headache when you're trying to simultaneously stand up a company, attract people to work for you, take risks, lose their jobs. If you've got a few hundred million in a bank, it's a little easier to attract people to your company than if you say, trust me, I'm going to keep raising enough money to not close the doors. So it's also a big advantage for attracting talent.
0: That's what I was going to ask, because obviously you then go literally the next day, you're now worth a billion dollars or or more. I mean, how has that changed the perception of, of the business?
1: Well, it helps us also back to you know where Brendan was asking at the customer front. Uh, you know we, we simplify it here and just have a line it's like, we're real. Sounds pretty simple, but I like simple things. We're real. So once you're a public company, you're, you're valued at a billion dollars, as you said. You're trading. You have money in the bank. Of course, you have real hardware that's driving down the street. And you have real engineering people in your office. Then the customers you know aren't, uh, again, thinking they're rolling the dice here or something. And that with a lot of startups... They have come and gone, frankly, in the CV industry where they've been sort of stuck with dinosaur product where the companies didn't make it and they have to crush it or or do something with it. But all of those factors we just said, especially the SPAC, Russell, makes us uh, very real to our customers. Picking up on something
2: that you mentioned earlier, James, about the impact of the, the semiconductor shortage in the market. I was kind of reading the Sunday papers and I was obviously aware of all of this, but within the consumer world, I was kind of reading about how manufacturers are basically shipping cars with without basic features because they don't have the, the semiconductors to put in like the Bluetooth audio or whatever it might be. True. But what's the kind of this the state of that supply shortage at the moment? And, and how are you navigating that?
1: Well, at the industry level, you're right. I've been doing this a long time. It's been many, many years in purchasing as well. And, uh, This is unprecedented you know that one commodity you know can bring an entire industry to its knees is phenomenal and car companies right you know wrestle this all the time if they've allocated their wheels to you know brazil and all of a sudden there's an issue then that model and that plants down that happens all the time, but an entire industry being you know, shut down essentially by one commodity is unprecedented. And you're right, they're they're doing everything they can imagine, reprogramming you know, their actual hardware boxes to adapt to new chips. They're moving the chips from vehicle A to B to try to protect the uh, more valuable or, or higher margin products. The shipping, as you said, uh, here, because we have many assembly plants in this Detroit area, you can drive up. Uh, I-75 and see huge farmer fields with all these vehicles parked waiting You know, for the day a chip shows up so somebody can run out, <laughs> put it in, a, in the vehicle and off it can go. But it's been devastating because you drive around the dealerships, as I mentioned, there's just no no product on the lots. The poor sales guys have literally nothing to sell. You order a car, it's a two or three month lead time. So unbelievable. Switching back to us, though, one of the advantages we have is that our business model, we haven't talked about that much, is at least initially what we call a knockdown kits, CKD, completely knocked down. And it's done uh, often with many uh, large OEMs that go to a new uh, country and a new market. So they take an existing vehicle, break it all down into its parts, put it in a box. I'm making this oversimplified, ship the box to that new country, set up a assembly plant, you know, put it back together, call it Lego, and off the vehicle goes. Um, depending on the regulations of that country, though, <laughs> You may get away with just shipping the vehicle as is, put it back together, you're in business. Or you have to adapt it to that local market. So even in our case, as Cadillac, you know, started off and heading into China, you know, we said, okay, we break down our Cadillac here as is, ship it to China, put it back together. But boom, and then over the years, then you start localizing all your parts, and it becomes you know more and more of a homegrown unit. And ultimately, with well, a full assembly plan as as Cadillac China is today, it's one example. I think a Toyota coming to the U.S., the very first Camry, you know, came over with the Japanese Camry with a grill. And now, boom, you know, huge assembly plants and all, all localized in the U.S. So that's the standard kind of automotive go to a new country play. So in our case, to keep this simple, what we've done is we've found product in Asia and in China that's already in the market. That's where the proven reliable comes from. It's being sold, has been in the market for several years. The normal things that go on vehicle launches with software bugs and things like that have been worked out. Durability, you know, suspension, things like that, and so we bring those over in kits, and then and do the final assembly here, but add in all of the U.S. specific requirements, which are, and it's it's quite a few, but it's the safety system, all the airbags and and uh, you know steering wheel airbags, all that have to be all brand new and a completely different set of regulations than are in both Europe and China, so. All that said, the advantage we have is that uh, the chips are already in those vehicles going down the line today in China uh, on those assembly plants, and it's we're leveraging their purchasing power, we're leveraging their current vehicle builds, and so at this particular time, they don't have chip issues in the models that we're bringing over, so consequently, we don't either.
0: In terms of like moving to the next phase of the business, then, so we've, you know, obviously, 2021 has been a huge milestone uh, to get to where you are now. But, w- yeah, w- what's the next frontier for Elms?
1: We've looking at a couple of things. First is uh, there's a lot of, you know, in this SPAC business and then also in a startup business, there's a lot of what, uh, you know, we just call hype and, uh, you know, a lot of promises and a lot of PowerPoints and, and things like that that have manufactured some very high-value companies, but their actual execution is a long time away. The car business takes a long time to stand up. And so, what we're focusing on near, you know, near end right now is execute, execute. So get vehicles out the back door, scale our plant. And so, we're starting initially by design with very low volumes, fifty or hundred a month, just to make sure. Again, at the plant level and the manufacturing level, we have all of those systems tuned in, and the quality systems are working properly. And then, throughout the first, second quarter, we'll start uh, climbing that volume up, you know, much higher. So, from the investors' shareholders' standpoint. Even our customers, um, what they like to see is you're not just a aftermarket, you know, low volume converter. You know, you are a true OEM. So, first step is during the uh, 2022 is for us to scale the plant up and produce significant volumes. That comes back to my original theme of being real. You know, we're a real OEM, and then you know, from uh, publicity, communications, you know, all of that uh, end of the business gaining some uh, large brands so that we can have uh, customer testimonials mainly. And, and this is a business that goes laterally very fast. You know, we catch a couple of very big brands, big fleet managers, big fleet companies that uh, adopt our product. And then, you know, word gets out very quickly. It's a small world uh, that these guys all live in. And uh, we're very sure that that, uh, you know, lateral growth will will go like wildfire once the word's out that they they've taken our product and they work and they're reliable. Our reputation is good, so scale is. I think the the simplest answer. Are you prepping
0: for that scale in recruitment now, or how are you planning for that?
1: Yeah, that's uh, on all fronts. You know, there's the scale of engineering. You know, headquarters we have here in the north, northern area of Detroit. We also have scaled up an office in San Francisco to address the talent pool, uh, human capital that's available in the whole software hardware space, of course, in San Francisco. We opened up an office in Shanghai to scale there, so that we can tap into. Let's be honest, the EV industry in China is, what, three or four years ahead of us here. So they're already well down the road with uh, developing engineering talent and having talent pools uh, for us to be able to draw on. So we're scaling our talent in each of our offices worldwide and also um, you know expanding our market first and then uh, scaling, scaling different kind of scale, adding another another product to our product portfolio. So sort of expanding on all fronts.
0: Picking up on that, um, James, as, as all this expansion happens, does, does that, Create new challenges that that you have to overcome.
1: Yes, well, I think the one that comes you know to mind is is again uh, people and human capital. As we expand into those different areas, the one reason we're doing that is to access the pool of human capital. Not rely on all of that. You know, being in Detroit, Detroit's uh, famous for and has a phenomenal pool of, let's say, traditional vehicle engineers here. And so, as you look into the chassis, suspensions, you know, body, you know, there's no better place to park yourself, which is why we're here. But on top of that, you know, you also have to access all of the hardware software that is in we think you know Silicon Valley, so that uh, is that office and then as we expand into China with their whole EV industry, you know, batteries, energy systems are primarily located there. So one is to locate in the centers of exp- expertise and where the highest amount of human capital exists, but then the second challenge is the competition. You know, everybody in the world, every major OEM and all the startups are all looking for to some degree the same people and convince them that uh, that they should join them so we have a, a real you know everyday hand-to-hand combat with all of these good people it's easy to get average people but to get the really good people we have to convince them that elms is uh, a better place for them and why and you know, pitch our story to them and sell them into coming to our company that's probably the biggest challenge
2: you kind of hinted at this james that um there's a lot of hype in in the tech sector and lots of PowerPoints, as you, as you said, you kind of talked a bit about how at the moment you're really focusing on, on execution, but you kind of also talked about how important brand is, you know, and ultimately people can have similar boxes, but you know, brand is incredibly important. How do you see differentiating yourself from a, from a brand perspective in this kind of very noisy,
1: cluttered environment? Well, I, th- I think uh, back to the theme of business to business and sort of real world uh evidence, I think the differentiation is is earned and it you know it has to be from the customer backwards. And, you know, these people are, I think, and have pretty low tolerance on lack of performance. They're not that forgiving. you think of the early days when people receive a Tesla and it doesn't work and the software doesn't work and the quality is no good, that if you're an early adopter and you're a kind of tech fanatic, you got a lot of tolerance uh for. For imperfect product, let's say, and they mus- muscled their way through those early years, and now, of course, much better. But likewise, in our front, you know, we have to deliver these reliable products. They have to actually demonstrate the cost savings that we're saying, you know, or they're not going to repeat buy, or they're not going to expand their fleets, or they're not going to word of mouth, you know, tell the other fleets. And so that's how we have to differentiate the brand. Is uh, and and to be honest, I'll say this as a kind of a double negative: is say the going in position is a pretty low bar that it's not going to work. So all we have to do is say what we, you know, deliver what we say we're gonna deliver and we'll, we'll, we'll make it. But there's a lot of uh, skepticism, you know, in, in this uh, fleet side of the business that they're gonna be able to hold up to their reliability uh, targets. GM's coming in here with their bright drops, uh, Ford's coming in with their e-transits. In Europe, there, there are already commercial vehicles. So it isn't like this is brand new, uh, that there aren't people already doing this and experiencing it. But in our particular case, Helms case, we have a lot of uh, experienced people here. We have a, a plant that's been making vehicles for 20 years. We have a lot of experience there. And so what we need to prove you know, very quickly is our differentiating factor, what, what our brand is going to be known for is reliable.
2: That's yeah, really great to hear. Another area that we like to explore on this podcast series is around company culture. And you've obviously got a, a, a distributed team. What's your kind of philosophy as far as kind of building company culture?
1: That's a... Not just a trick question. That's that's a complicated question, and you know, define culture and how much of that is just, let's say, organically grown by doing the right things versus you know, we're gonna we're gonna make a culture announcement. and <laughs> We're going to uh, tell everybody what the culture is. Uh, you know, you have to put all the right, in my opinion, enablers in place, and then it happens or doesn't based on your actions at the senior leadership. Um, so of course we can set the tone for that. We can set some direction for that by um, doing some of the th- the right things at senior leadership. But yeah, we're the culture we're trying to get is a very call it uh, pragmatic, unhyped. I wouldn't say low key because it's very intense here as well. I think good startups have a, have a constant view of survival. You can't you can't take your survival for granted. Coming from GM, of course, we we said safest place on earth, and then we went bankrupt. So I don't sure, I'm not sure there's any safe haven anywhere anymore. But but well, we have to have that attitude that uh, everybody's you know coming to game day every day and uh, fighting towards survival to get us up to a point on the curve that at least someone called steady state. But it's uh, you know safer, and that's uh, only through execution. So there's a huge amount of as they say cultural focus here on people that know what they're doing you know, we're hired for a specific purpose. They deliver what they said that they will deliver and uh, they're competent in, in delivering that. And there's no place to hide in a big company. You can have, again, speaking from personal experience, a lot of people that are pretty average or less and find places to hide a whole career. And then Retire happy as if they actually did something when in reality they never really did anything. But they don't get exposed. So this is a very uh, visible culture, and you know your results are very visible. More like a sports team. I use sports a lot. Whether it's a your case, football, soccer team, or whether it's you know American football team, is you're paid a lot of money to run out and catch the ball. You don't catch the ball three or four times. What happens? They they trade you, and it's not like, oh he's a nice guy or you know, he tried really hard or, uh, you know, his mother's sick. It's like, you didn't catch the ball. Like, that's all that matters. You didn't score. So uh, we want to have a performance culture where it's, you know, you you hired me. My job is this. I did it. You should be happy with me. You should pay me well. Mm. Okay. That's pretty simple. Um, All the rest of it is important. Ought to be kind of givens, uh, supportive and, you know, the right benefits. And, happy people and all that but you know we want people to to uh, just deliver so the company can deliver
2: i think sports is a very great inspiration for culture i um i draw upon it all the time and constantly bore my team with like soccer analogies but one of my favorite uh, favorite coach he's kind of says i don't want to have the best team I want to be the best team, you know, and like that, you know, like not having the best 11 players on the pitch, I want to be the best team, which I think is kind of quite a nice, um, a nice, good one.
1: That's a good one. I love quotes like that because uh that happens on the weekends. A different team is the best team on that weekend. We're going into all the you know, college finals now in football here. And there's so many upsets going into these last set of brackets uh of teams that are impossible to lose, Have haven't lost in three years and Ohio state lost, you know, two weeks ago. It's like, that can't happen. Well, but it did. Mm. And uh, on that day, they weren't the best team. Anyways, that's the the same metaphor here. Now we haven't asked it yet, but I'll just you know hammer on this point for your audience as well as uh, you know human capital, human capital, human capital. So you know what's the differentiator at the end of the day if you're CEO that, that you got one answer. So you can pick a product, you can pick a plant, you know, buy capital, physical capital, machines, you know, locations, markets, but. At the end of the day, the differentiation is human capital. That's why sports is so evident because that's all you got is human capital, you know, more or less, right? You buy them equipment, but it's all about people on display. And it's the same thing in a company. You have to have the right human capital or uh, or you're not going to be the best team.
2: And I guess part of, that role of managing human capital is the internal communication side of things and i think as a leader you you have this dual thing where you're often you're trying to communicate with people one-to-one in small groups but then at the same time you're trying to transmit your values what you're trying to get across to a to kind of like a wide group to the entire company what's your approach to internal communications
1: well, i think uh, i think a few things one of the words that comes to mind is uh you know sort of humility and and uh you know, approachability, access. Uh, again, we're small now in this particular office, we're only 150 people, but in the uh, old, old terms of just, you know, management by walking around, which means, you know, people see you, you stop by, ask questions, see, you know, drop into meetings unannounced and uh, hey, what's going on to uh, be accessible and be seen and also gives you to to be honest a a speech opportunity because you know when you're the senior leadership and my senior staff we spend a lot of time together if you hopefully if you queried, queried any of them they'd be able to articulate what it is that our vision mission and all those sorts of things are but you also can fall in a trap of taking that for granted and that that message is being adequately filtered down you know to the lowest people in the organization and that's a mistake if you assume that so you know, repetition, repetition, repetition on, you know, what is the message and personally delivering it as opposed to assuming as you announced that, you know, in your staff meeting that that's going to make it all the way to the right person or the right ears, reinforcing it in these meetings with the rationale and the how comes and the why's behind it, as opposed to just uh, posters on the wall and ensuring everybody, you know, everybody gets it. I think the other uh, principle that I've learned, you know, over the years, uh, one of my mentors along the GM journey, we're talking and, uh, putting together presentations, because it's kind of what you do for a living. You're always presenting something to somebody because you're selling a proposal, or a budget. And he, uh, we're going through it. And he said, oh, it's too complicated. It's too complicated. So the line he said to me is, if you can explain this to your mother Sunday night at dinner, then you got it. But you know, so many of the communication uh, pathways, especially internally, are so complicated, you've lost your audience. And uh, you know, again, you're taking for granted that they're operating with your level of information or you know, background or education or all the different variables so i keep the message really simple and uh and consistent and uh you know repeat it and repeat it and repeat it not assume because you said it once it's you know it's going to stick to the wall and whether that's internal to be honest or externally a lot of that's the same uh same formula
0: i was going to ask actually do you feel as comfortable communicating internally as you do as a as an external representative of the business
1: yeah in my case i, I do it's uh I think, you know, sort of ask why, or you know, look in the mirror and say, how, how come, you know, why is that? And I think there's a bit of a natural selection process. I think if you get the leadership levels, you have to have that, you know, you have to be a good communicator or the catch 22 is you wouldn't become a senior leader because it's a, it's an essential uh, and critical role that you have and people that are promoting you back to more big companies, not founding companies, anybody can found a company and then whether they're successful or not will turn out. But at least in big companies, if you're not a good communicator, you just you just don't advance um, because it's a critical skill. I think also in a convincing way, but I'd also say, Russell, you know, well, I've said this twice, three times, maybe already luck, luck and timing. How is was put into a lot of jobs where it wasn't you know, optional. The Cadillac job, for instance, was a, a huge number of public appearances. And so also practice makes perfect. And so along the way,
2: James, I'm guessing that you've had a few tricky moments that you've had to manage from a communication <laughs> standpoint. What would you say has been like the biggest communications challenge you've had to to deal with and overcome that you're prepared to share?
1: <laughs> That's a good one to think through. Uh, well, I'll, I'll work from uh, I'd say challenge right now to keep it in the current tense. Brendan is that you know being a public company CEO, you are under literally you know a microscope and Knowing you know we could use this broadcast as an example. Every part of this can be listened to by the SEC. They can say that you gave away information that you know isn't public. Uh, Somebody can put a lawsuit to me that said you know how did you say that? I didn't know that. So literally every word you say as a public company CEO is uh, eventually can be and many times immediately scrutinized. So that's the first stress in, in in any public company's CEO's life is being very very careful and what can happen as a natural consequence of that is you just don't do any, you know, you stop doing them because that risk is too high. And so you'll see, especially with the bigger companies, such manufactured press releases, earnings, you know, releases, everything is pre-written, everything's pre-scripted. They take very few interviews because the risk is too high, you know, so they just don't. And they end up uh, sending, you know, PR guys or sending other people to do their talking for them and take very limited engagements. So far, I'm not, uh, Practicing that yet? i just be careful, and I'd uh, also give credit that uh, I'll just uh, go back and say the same thing again: is that you know General Motors is a very, very conservative company in a good way, and uh, you know we had a lot of help in understanding what to say, not to say, you know, staying on the safe side of the line, and uh, anticipating those you know as you're talking, so you don't get yourself in trouble. And I won't name names here, but in the U.S., a few of the the uh, SPAC. Um, leaders, founders, you know, that haven't come through that kind of a system and didn't have that level of experience, got themselves in immediate trouble, you know, post becoming company and have, you know, since lost their jobs because uh, they shouldn't say what they say, you know, should never have said it and uh, didn't catch themselves in time or didn't think about it, weren't trained, weren't experienced, whatever the cause is. But uh, yeah, you can literally lose your job overnight in uh, the seat I'm in now if you're not careful. So, but you know, I've had, again, lots of practice and, you know, hopefully I'll stay on the right side of that line. Has there ever been a time when you've
0: come off a, a broadcast interview or, and you've sort of panicked or or thought like <laughs> lost some sleep that evening thinking, yeah, did I say the right thing there?
1: No, you're right. It's uh, let's go back to sports. Russell is that, you know, I go back over the transcript and, you know, look at it very carefully and go, oh, damn, you know, why did I say that? Or I have a pretty, uh, tough partner here, my co-founder and, you know, he'll come in and I'll think, man, I nailed that one. You know, and he'll listen to the cut Hey, why'd you say that? How, how come you didn't remember to add this, you know, and, and embellish this point? Like, oh yeah, you're right. So, uh, yeah, we're pretty hard on ourselves and, and, uh, post-mortem things to see, you know, if we could have done it in a better way to kind of hone our skills, just like good sports guys do when they look at their game films. Um, but again, touch on wood. I haven't, uh, got in any uh, significant trouble where it's cost me a job or you know a, a career we always said that career limiting uh, interviews
0: it's interesting you say that because we i mean B- Brendan and I we are both naturally because <laughs> we we have our own podcast that we're doing now but i you know we love the podcast format because i i find it much more informal and we've talked about the fact that in that kind of informal setting, you can be more on, you you know, the CEOs do come across more, uh, more real, let's say, you know, more transparent, Mm -hmm. more, more, more honest. And you you don't feel like you're getting that corporate response that has been rehearsed. I mean, just out of interest do you, is this a format that, that you like, you know, that you're comfortable doing more than, than those, you know, more corporate style broadcast interviews, press interviews?
1: Oh, no question. No question. And, uh, you know, another aspect is, uh, the good parts about being a founder and being a CEO, and now you know, kind of a company owner, is I do all these. You know, I don't uh, relegate this to anybody. I think it's important that I put a face on the company, and it's uh, it's human. You know, it's not a corporate line or a company's line or a company's release. It's mine, and uh, and also establishing relationships with all these key communicators because let's go back to the communication business that you're in. It's it's really really vital for a company, especially new ones and startups and things. So. I want to make sure it's uh, done well and that we're getting the, like you, the multiplier effect of uh, getting the right audiences and uh, all the tools in the business of getting our message out. We're still kind of a best-kept secret a, a little bit in a lot of the uh, areas that I go to and talk to. So we appreciate uh, opportunities like this to get our message out.
0: Well, I, I, I promise you, if you have said anything bad, uh, we'll edit it out before, <laughs> before we make this live. But I'm sure it's all fine. Uh, listen, James, we've we've got one final Question for you: We've asked all our our um, leaders on you know in the, in this series the same question. So we're going to put it to you. If if you were to uh, go back in time and speak to your old self, what guidance would you give yourself about communications, and what steps would you encourage yourself to take in order for you and your business to excel in comms?
1: Well, um, sorry to be repetitive, but I think. Uh the the old self. And I look back sometimes, I get this question, you know, quite frequently from younger people, of course, you know, how did you uh, make your career so successful? And it's like you had some, you know, manual or something that says, go here, go there. And a lot of it just happens to you. It's another famous expression, life's what happens when you aren't paying attention or something. But during that, uh, those journeys, as I mentioned, I did have a lot of chances to, you know, practice being a communicator. And, uh, I think just like sports, there's also some sort of magnets that happen is if you're good at something, you get attracted to it and then you get better at it. So I think, you know, compliments of my parents, I think uh, I was born a little bit with the knack. you probably, you guys entered this business. So probably the same and thick ass my mother and say, you know, you had the gift of the gab from the time you could talk. So I like talking, (laughs) always uh, always have, so it became you know more of a natural skill. But I'd say if you identify that in the communications areas where you're heading to, is you know practice, practice, practice. Find opportunities and and work on it. It isn't different than sports or muscle building. You you have to uh, study it and look at it as a science. You know what works, what doesn't work. You know about uh, communications, and then uh, find, get yourself in places to be able to keep getting better at it, just like sports. Practice, 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 and I think the other is uh, there's been plenty of circumstances. Uh, and I guess I, I'll think of the one that's uh, just a top of mind. But, you know, even though this practice, I don't want to sound that arrogant, is like there's still some days you walk out and like, okay, I am nervous as hell because even, <laughs> I guess, let's say you're going to the World Cup or, you know, the Super Bowl, it's even those guys, you know, when Tom Brady walks out in the field, I'm sure he's got a little nervous, you know, it's the big day. So, uh, you know, I'm not fear free or something when you go into these, but you have to throw yourselves in those uh, circumstances, you know, trust your, training and then, uh, and then maybe go back and post-mortem, but you can't shy away from the opportunities for big time, you know, big time venues, big time opportunities to be in that space and uh, take them on. So yeah, going back, I'd say uh, early on was probably a little bit reluctant to take on some of the, the big speaking opportunities or big communication opportunities, but I think it's just wait in there and, uh, and, uh, treat it like sports, flex your muscles, and, uh, you're going to, you're going to be better for it at the other end. So, I know the one that it should be. I should be calm and normal. But when we did our actual announcement of our company, and by the way, I count this like engagement, and then we got married. So the SPAC process, as you know, is a merger process, really, right? You aren't, you aren't founding a company; somebody else already has one, and you're merging into them. But we announced our merger two days ago. Here, so our first birthday is on Saturday from a, a year ago. So when we made that announcement that morning, uh, I talked to Phil Lebeau on CNBC. And so I'd say that's one of those days, seven o'clock in the morning, we've been up all night finishing all of our agreements. It's freezing in Detroit. We're standing out in a parking lot at 6 a.m. And it's, hey, good morning, Phil. Well, when you talk to Phil LeBeau, I don't know if you know him, but on a good day, he's going to, hey, Jim, good to see you. On a bad day, it's like, what the hell were you thinking? And he attacks. So you don't know which way he's going to come from. Those are stressful days. And so you just got to roll with, uh, you know, that you've got you got it uh, pre-trained and, and, you know, you're going to survive the battle. But some of the these uh, communication uh, engagements aren't all fun like this one. And uh, they can be extremely stressful and they can be extremely damaging. But you just have to train like any sport and be ready for game day and, and go at it and do it. So
0: Brilliant advice. Um, James Taylor, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, joining the podcast. Really enjoyed it. Brendan, another... Um, Great interview there. What, what were your thoughts on what James had to uh, say?
2: Yeah, it was really interesting, and um, I guess we we talked to a lot of entrepreneurs who probably are earlier in their careers and don't have James's kind of, you know, incredible background working for a, a large corporation like like GM. And it's kind of re- really interesting to get his perspective on things with those dual kind of roles that he's held with both startups and, you know, working for a large corporation. The thing that kind of resonated with me was the, that kind of, he talked about the importance of brand in, in this industry, but he then kind of really explained how for them it's not really necessarily about kind of making this huge song and dance but actually that for them the way that they will build their brand and and build kind of trust and confidence is through being very pragmatic and and really focusing on delivery and and that they work with a with a group of customers who have a very low tolerance for failure Um, whereas in some areas of technology you know that whole concept of a minimum viable product means that you can kind of your your customers in the tech world can be quite forgiving, but not in this case. And so, I think I, I guess it kind of really emphasised to me that that while brand is probably important in every for every business, what constitutes a strong brand and what makes up a strong brand will be very different. And in 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 this case, it's actually about a pragmatic, humble company that is going is really focused on execution. Excellent
0: summary, Brendan. Thank you for that. And um, that actually wraps up this latest episode of the uh, special series that we're doing with Brendan's company, Taito. If you want to find out more about Elms, their website is uh, simply electriclastmile.com. We'd love to hear your comments on today's chat. You can do that by sharing them on our Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or Twitter feeds, or you can do it in the uh, comments of the YouTube version of this podcast. Those are all linked from the top of our website at CSuitePodcast.com, where you'll You'll also find all our previous shows and supporting show notes plus links to where you can follow us for automatic downloads of each episode uh, via the likes of Spotify and Apple and if you've liked what you heard please do give us a positive rating and review. Uh, We're of course available on all podcast apps just search for the C Suite podcast and hit follow or subscribe. You can also subscribe to the Without Borders podcast from our partners at Taito. All the details for that are on their website. Uh, Just head to titopr.com and click on the podcast link in the top nav bar plus you can also download a copy of growing without borders the unicorn ceo guide to communication and culture uh, from tito's website as well um, it's a great overview of the first 15 of our unicorn interviews if you are a unicorn leader yourself and you'd like to be part of this series please do get in touch via the contact form on the website at c uh, plus of course anyone can get in touch with any feedback you may have and finally you can also reach me via twitter using at Russ goldsmith or you can find me on linkedin but for now